As always, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you for having me back once again, um, especially one week before. It looks like all of us, but most of us will be celebrating Christmas. Um, it's a season of hope, a season of imagination, a season for some of us, for myself, where just for a moment things slow down just enough um, to help me realize how fast-paced everything has been up until that moment. And the season before the Christmas holiday, for many, is a season of waiting, right? In the Christian tradition of Advent, we spend these weeks up through this one, waiting for the birth of a new life that represents a new promise of hope and redemption for the world. Advent for me, as a child in an Orthodox Christian home, was full of nightly rituals and traditions. Like, from about six weeks before Christmas, every night we would gather as a family in the living room, we would light our Advent candles, we would do a Bible reading, we would sing songs as a family. We had like, there's three sisters, so three different Advent calendars, because we each got to do one, find our piece of candy, right? But because of those traditions, the anticipation building to Christmas became unbearable towards the end. And the celebration of a world renewed by Christ's birth was a joyful one. Christmas for me now is still very joyful. As the parent of two small kids, it's exciting and sweet and admittedly a little exhausting as we all prepare for the holiday. But I've realized that I no longer experience this season with a spirit of reverence waiting unless someone reminds me to. Those nightly Advent rituals aren't something I've brought into my family's life at this point. But when I stop and reflect, I can say that I relate to the excitement and anticipation that comes with this expectation of this arrival of a world born anew. Because the truth is, I need that now more than I did as a child. Because, my friends, this world has me weary most days. I don't think I would struggle to find many of you that would relate to the fact that I spend most of my time tired. I spend most of my time feeling tired overworked, overcommitted, stressed. I wish that wasn't the truth, but it is. And I believe this is the case for many reasons. And because of that, I'm constantly working trying to optimize myself, my choices, the structure of my life, my schedule, my priorities, so that I can somehow find more energy to do more things, <coughs> or so that I can also do what's already on my plate with a more genuine smile on my face. But the truth is, if I really stop and think about it, is that I live in a society, we live in a society that's pretty much set up for us to be stressed and tired. Our culture emphasizes individualism and self-sufficiency. We are raised with the belief that success equals having more, doing more, just being more. We're set up to prioritize ourselves over others, to try and create more wealth for ourselves so that we may better thrive, and if you're wired like we are here in this community, the value that we place on prioritizing justice, change-making, meaning-making, and building a world that is centered on love is something that we have to spend energy on on top of all of those other requirements that our day-to-day -day lives present us with. This system, this society, sometimes it feels like it doesn't want us to build community as much as it wants us to keep working to keep the system moving, to keep the system growing. And it's exhausting. It's a way of being and living that has not always been here. It was something that was created. <coughs> Yet most of the time we forget that. 
And we accept that things are just the way they are until something wakes us up. Twice a year for the last 10 years, on a Thursday, an afternoon in April, and again in September, I step out of my typical day-to-day -day responsibilities and into a different world. This world, hosted at a children's summer camp just outside of Nashville, is the home of Camp Bluebird, a twice-yearly retreat for adults who have experienced cancer. Now, it sounds like a heavy experience when I first describe it. Most visualize a dreary and tear-filled weekend full of however they would imagine sick people to look and act. But the truth is, Camp Bluebird is one of the most love and laughter-filled places I've ever spent time in. It's silly and goofy, and people just feel free. Camp's foundation is laid because the people there share a common and painful experience that has often left them feeling othered and isolated. Now, I have not personally lived through cancer, but through my years of being involved in this work, I have heard countless stories of people who went from feeling connected and thriving to feeling unheard and unseen. Suddenly, the people who loved them couldn't understand what they were going through or the fear they were facing. So camp offers up to them that safe community of people who get it. I've watched campers over the years blossom and find their voices once they understand that they are not alone. It's a beautiful and life-giving experience. Additionally, because the common bond that brings people to camp is a diagnosis, and not a shared set of beliefs or identities, it's one of the most diverse communities that I've ever been a part of. Cancer doesn't discriminate based on your political, religious, or social beliefs. There's no design to whom it touches, so during these two weekends a month, everyone in attendance finds themselves just dropped into a community surrounded by people that they would never find themselves in community with otherwise. Lastly, and ultimately, camp is a place of service. As a volunteer, I show up and I ask, how can I help? I help campers navigate the weekend schedule. I listen to whatever they have to say. I clear their plates at meals. I ask them what they need. Because of the context of where we are, before I ever learn a thing about them, I'm choosing to love them, to welcome them, to operate alongside them as I would any beloved friend. We skip the getting to know you part, and we go straight to the hugs. And it's miraculous. What camp has done for me has given me an example of what it means to actively love through difference. While we're only together two weekends a month, there are many people who've been volunteering, volunteering alongside me at camp for a dozen years or even longer. And we've gotten to know plenty of things about each other personally during this time. Because of social media, we stay connected, we learn bits and pieces about each other's lives. And through that, it's become clear over the years that I'm the first queer peer person that many of these people have actually met. And I have watched on faces so many times as people actively make the choice to love me anyway when they learn that about me. You know, at first those moments were hard. I would mention my wife and brace myself. Often I can feel the energy shift when I indirectly come out to people and can read on people's faces as they measure the reaction of those that we're in conversation with to see how they should react, right? Like, how are we going to take this as a group? And as uncomfortable as I know that sounds as I describe it, and it has been at times for me personally, at Camp Bluebird, not one time, not one single time has anyone chosen to treat me any differently, at least any way that I could discern, once they know this thing about my life. 
And more often than not, these souls eventually start asking me how my wife is and asking more questions of me about my life and my experiences. And I watch their world open up a little bit as a result. And truthfully, my world opens up too because I'm reminded that even in places where I expect rejection or a belief system to cut me off from others, it doesn't happen because there, in that community, we are actively choosing to come from a place of love. When people ask me to describe Camp Bluebird, because typically we say it's cancer camp, and then we have to ask, answer a lot of questions, I usually start by stating that it's a community that has been created in the image of how I believe the world should be. Everyone that is there has joined together for the weekend because they either admitted in some way that they need help and support, which as we all know is a radical thing to admit in our society, or they showed up to help, to center their attention and their labor on caring for others, expecting nothing material in return. This is an example of the type of world I want to live in. A type of world that I know is possible because I live in it five days a year. The example that Camp Bluebird has given me offers me fuel and inspiration as well as the belief that communities like that could be built more often and can be more permanent than a retreat. I know I'm not the only one who has examples like this. I'm sure many of you are thinking of examples like this in your own lives right now. Examples of communities that are doing things in a different, more love-filled, more life-giving way. We could even use this congregation as an example. In her book, How We Show Up, author and facilitator Mia Birdsong describes a similar experience with another way of be being that she experienced at a retreat, and how it stirred up a longing within her to create more and more of this type of world that is, to quote her, interdependent, generative, and loving. She goes on to say, I am committed to living the most liberated life I can with those around me. And I'm not interested in having to step out of my daily life to have it created or go to a separate place in isolation from the rest of the world. That leaves too many people behind. We have to make it here where we live. Beloveds, in all of my life, I do not believe any sentiment or point of view has inspired me or brought me more hope than this one has. This idea that we can and must build the world we wish to live in. We must do our best to live as if we're already there. How else do we shape change? How else do we create ripple effects that draw our circle wider to start making lasting change? Not just in the hearts and lives of others, but truly, actually in our world. Mia Birdsong is not the only one talking about this. There are prophets everywhere who are shouting at us to do this. There are those here in our own Unitarian Universalist movement, like the Reverend Michael Slack, Reverend Sophia Betancourt, Rev Reverend Teresa Inesoto, reminding us to act on our values and imagine new ways of being. There are writers, activists, facilitators, and visionaries like Adrienne Marie Brown, Alexis Pauline Grums, Kate Rayworth, and Dean Spade. You can ask me about them later who are sharing visions of what this other way of being could look like. Now another thing that our world often keeps us too tired to do, and that these people are doing for us, is the work of building that complete vision of what this new world and of what that way of being would look like. We're so exhausted by the end of the day that we don't have it in us to imagine a lot of the time. 
So while we all long for something new, we actually don't know what that something new would truly look like and what it could truly feel like. And not having a complete vision makes it harder for us to take action, to start building. So what would it look like to build a future that is centered on community and mutual care? <clears throat> Mia Birdsong and her organization, Next River, described a future they are working to build that I'd like to share with you. And if you choose to, you may close your eyes or center yourself as I read this. I ask you to imagine with her and with me a new way of living, a new world. They say, we actively envision a future where we all have what we need to live a life rich with well-being. In the future we deserve, we experience a profound sense of belonging that is rooted in welcome, not exclusion. It is a future where abolition is past tense. Not only have we dismantled prisons and policing, but we have built broad systems of support where people are seen and cared for. It's a future where everyone is housed with nutritious food to eat, and clear air to breathe. In this future, when the inevitable conflicts arise, we use transformative justice to repair and restore. There is accessible health care for all of our bodies, our minds, and our <coughs> spirits. Paid labor is no longer the organizing principle of our time and lives. We live in right relationship with land and all living things. We are collectively building a future where we all have what we need to live a liberated life with connection and community. Now, that vision is broad and it's radical. And as you come back into the room with me, I'm not asking you to align with everything in it or even for us to have a debate on the merit of all the elements there. But I do ask you to think about what points in that vision spoke to your soul because I'm sure at least one of them is something that you find yourself longing for. Justice, health care, freedom from organizing your life around paid labor, that one kind of makes me feel dizzy with like, whoa, what could that even be like, right? What I'm asking you to do is take a moment, if you haven't in a while or ever, to sit with the understanding that other ways of being are possible. New worlds and new ways of being are possible. And if we look at the world around us and the society that we live in now, and we see that things are broken and harmful, it is our responsibility to remember, as folk singer Ani DeFranco said, that all of this was just someone's idea. It could just as well be mine. Now before I start talking about the things we can be doing to build this new world, whatever that justice, love-filled, and community-centered world looks like to you, I want to take a moment to, off to honor and lift up the healing practice that simply acknowledging the truth of other possibilities can be for us. While I'm currently thinking about the things I can do, I also know that just remembering that something else is possible can be the simple breath of fresh air we need to find hope again when everything feels too hard, and when the world is moving too fast, when the world may seem too broken. And if you leave church today with just one understanding or the reminder of it, I believe that that is simply enough. But also, I do want to take action. I'm a UU. Our sixth principle reminds us that we uphold and affirm the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. So if we hold that goal, we must work for it. <clears throat> but again, we are tired, and we are living in a system that makes big change immensely difficult to make. 
That doesn't mean we don't fight for it. We don't, that we don't organize or put pressure on the systems that do harm and oppress. But there is something to that notion that while doing those big things, we can also do the radical, hopeful act of living as though we're already in that world, as I mentioned before. So what does that look like? What does that look like in clear, actionable ways? I would say, first of all, that the Christmas season offers us some examples of what that could look like. We gather in each other's homes. We celebrate together. We bring food to one another. We slow down. We spend time feeling the magic around us in ways we don't in other parts of the year. We can start in small micro steps. We can treat everyone with that spirit of radical and generous welcome that Birdsong described. We can participate in forms of mutual aid, like community fridges and free stores. We can get to know our neighbors and proactively offer to help them when we see that they need it. We can throw block parties. We can learn the names of everyone's pets. And we can offer things up for free on Facebook Marketplace or instead of for sale. We can give away our playpens. These are small things, y'all, but they can be radical. A few weeks ago, a post on Instagram by actor Sasha Smith started popping up in all of my friends' feeds. Every Instagram story that I swiped through from my friends was showing me every second or third one had this there, so maybe you saw it too. But it was a long string of text that I had to tap screen to read, for those of you who spend too much time on Instagram like I do. I'm going to read to you what she said. I think this is another example of that kind of vision of what a new way of being could look like, but on a smaller, community-based, maybe more achievable scale in the short term. She said, I want to be asked to come over and help put my friend's kids to bed as casually as they might text their spouse and ask them to pick up milk on the way home. I want to stop and pick up milk for another friend because I know their spouse hates the grocery store. I want to buy fruit that I don't like because it's on special and I know people who do. I want to pass lemons over the fence and take my neighbor's bins out when they forget. I want group chats instead of rideshare apps. Calls in the middle of the night because someone's at the hospital, lonely or hungry or both. I want to do the dishes in other people's houses. Extra servings wrapped in tin foil and tea towels so it's still warm when you drop it off. A basket of other people's mending on my couch. I want to be surrounded by reminders that imposing on each other is what we're born to do. I can't articulate exactly why, but every time I read that, I feel emotional. It makes me want to cry. When I read it the first time, it hit me hard because I want this life. I want it badly. I want to be known in this way. I want to be helpful in this way. I want to be accountable to my community in this way. But the truth is, I'm far from that. Many of us are. When I grabbed that Instagram post and reposted it to my own feed, my wife texted me because I was at the office and she said, this is the life I want. She said, I want us to recognize that giving of ourselves, our time, our energy, our resources, is not an inconvenience to our life, but it is life. It's a simple reframing, but it's also a reminder that this new world we long for is something that I think we truly need. We are meant to be in community. As Audre Lorde said, without community, there is no liberation. And as James Baldwin said, the place in which I fit will not exist unless I make it. So, many of us feel lonely and isolated even when surrounded by others all day. And this work for community building and world making can be an antidote to this. It can save us. I'm not alone. 
And in my, in my house, we will start small. We will do our best to live in right relationship with the little plot of land that we live on, and we can work to be helpful members of our community. And if we're doing that, if more and more of us are doing that, prioritizing that, we may begin inspiring others to do that too. And it may sound small and silly, but I think we can inspire movements. We can inspire new ways of building. We can live in that future world right now, just as we're building it. Artist Molly Costello wrote as an introduction to her collection of work, Fertile Futures. There is much, so much extracted from each of us. What would it look like for us to slow down and sow care and nutrients into our shared foundations? What are shared values that support wellness and abundance in our social spaces? She goes on to say, I trust each of our imaginations with these questions, and I know that I am certainly not the only one holding them. I trust that each of us is doing our part and that our small practices will slowly connect in new webs of being. We will shift our culture towards the sacred truth that each of our lives are interconnected and hold value as we create the world that reflects us. May we remain hopeful. May we remember that we are powerful and that our choices matter. May we find enough opportunity in this season and at all times to rest so that we have the energy to imagine. And may we share this vision with others. This is our life's work. This is the future we leave our children. This is the world that lies in wait for which we observe our own advent. This is holy work. And I believe we are just the people to do it. May it be so.